for generations of children growing up in Britain, this tune, or one of its many variations, was an ingrained part of their childhood, as every week millions would tune in to watch Blue Peter, the longest-running children's TV show in the world. I'm Genevieve, and I was one of those viewers who used to avidly recreate a Blue Peter make from toilet rolls and other bits of random stuff from around the house, and when I started watching, my guest today had just joined the show as its 17th presenter and quickly became one of my favourites. So it's a real treat she's joined me today to talk about her life after that thing she did. Please welcome Yvette Fielding. Yvette, hello. Lovely to see you today. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Happy belated birthday for a couple of weeks Thank ago. You. Your birthday was three days before mine, so we are fellow Librans. Yes, us Librans. Do you find that um, you can't make a decision about anything? Um, my husband would probably say that <laughs> yeah. about me. I always like somebody else to make the decision, even just things like going into a restaurant and which table do we want to sit at? I can't bear it. It's like, well, you make the decision. I can't do it. I was actually due on the 23rd, but I hung on in there for a few more days. Ah. Um, and so now I share my birthday with Olivia Newton-John which I quite like. Ah, a nice lady. Yes. Uh, please don't take this the wrong way, but I think because you've been on our screens for so long and you started your career so young, which we'll get onto in a second, and also because when you're a kid, everyone on TV is old <laughs> by comparison. But I assumed you were older, but you're only 55. <laughs> I know, 55. I was actually, the, when, when it was the birthday, I was like, 55? Oh my God, where the hell's it gone? Where has that gone? And you always used to think when older people would say to you, oh, enjoy it. It goes so quick. You think, oh, shut up, you old sod. And about, <laughs> but actually, so true. And I wish I'd listened to them at my, you know, my young, arrogant age, you know, of being 12 and 13. And it is true. It does go quickly, doesn't it? But you do have two grown-up children now yeah. who've flown the nest. And I was wondering, because... Me and my husband have noticed when we visit our parents now, not only is their fridge fuller than it was when we lived there, the quality of the food is better too. They're now shopping at Waitrose or M&S. <laughs> There's taste the difference food and finest food ranges. Is your fridge the same? I was wondering if this is some sort of unspoken thing that all parents know to do after their kids leave home. You'd think so, but no, I think we're sort of, uh, we went to which supermarket was now. I can't remember which, which it was. Oh, it was Tesco, weirdly enough. And we just did the big shop and uh, just buying nice things, nothing expensive. One bottle of wine, I think, was the most expensive thing we get because Carl doesn't drink. And we don't, we're vegetarians, so there was no meat or anything like that. We had mostly frozen corn stuff and fruit and this, that and the other. Filled the basket up. Uh, was it £207? We nearly fell on the floor and had to go through the whole receipt from the beginning to the end to go, surely she's made a mistake. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And now we don't shop there anymore. We actually go to home bargains. I refuse. Oh, oh absolutely. You can get everything you need there. And honest to God, I've gone the other way. And I think it's a sign of the times. I just think with everything that's going on at the moment, you've got to be so careful. And so, no, we don't go out and we don't go and spend a load of money and treat ourselves. We're just sort of uh, in fact, we started doing a little bit of plant your own in your own garden, our own spring onions, potatoes, tomatoes, that sort of thing. I'm trying to get into more self-sufficiency. And yeah, I like that. I like sort of just sort of tramping barefoot over the grass and picking my tomatoes. Good. It's, it's good to be self-sufficient. I can't grow anything. All the plants in our house are fake because <laughs> everything we have dies. So <laughs> this is just impossible. Can't do it. Anyway. Okay, right. So let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Everybody remembers you as a Blue Peter presenter, which for our non-British friends is the longest running TV show here and in the world. In fact, it's celebrating its 65th anniversary this year. And it's a British institution embedded in our culture and part of everyone's childhood, especially in the 80s when there were only four TV channels and even before then when there were only three TV channels. Uh, but before you joined, you were a child actress starring in the BBC tea time drama Sea View set in a Blackpool guest house where you played aspiring performer Sandra and you have that role to thank for getting on the radar of Biddy Baxter, who was the Blue Peter editor. That's right, yeah. It was uh, unbelievable, really, just to get this sort of call. Biddy Baxter has seen you on Seaview and she'd like you to come in for an audition. And I was like, excuse me, what? And I wanted to be an actress. I didn't want to be a TV presenter. 
but you don't turn down the opportunity then to go on the biggest tea time show at the time. I mean, they were, I think the highest viewing figures were 8 million. And that at the time for a sort of five to five show was, was, was huge. So um, you don't turn that down. And children's TV. Yes. Yeah, of course. So I went for the audition and I didn't get it. Um, and Karen Keating got it. Oh, she's beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous lady. And she got that. And then I think it was a year later. So I was really young when she first asked me to audition. I mean, I must have just been 17. Um, and then I came back when I was 18 and I got the job. I don't know how the hell I got the job because the audition was absolutely appalling. But um, I did it. And that, that was that. And uh, yeah, so I uh, moved from my home in Cheshire where I live with my mum. And uh, I'd only been abroad twice before. And I was flown to Russia for six weeks. And um, Russia in the 80s, it's certainly not as westernised as it is now. You know, it's quite a bleak country and, and, and frightening too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had quite a few adventures for six weeks in Russia. And uh, yeah, I felt very lonely because I was the youngest sort of, I was considered a kid and a pain in the ass of a kid. You know, for goodness sake, you know. And uh, so I didn't enjoy the first year. I found it very traumatic, to be fair. Well, come back to that in a second. Um, but she, you know, you were the youngest presenter, um, still are the youngest presenter to have joined Blue Peter. And uh, you say, you know, you, you were 17 when you offered the job, 18 when you started. Mm. But I have to say, you didn't look your age at the time. Maybe it was the 80s perm, but you didn't really look like you were 17, 18. Well, everybody in the 80s looked older, didn't they? Well, I just, I, I look back at photographs now and I think, oh my God in heaven, what on earth? If only I, I mean, hair straighteners hadn't been invented then. I think they, they came out towards the end of the 80s and Karen, my co-presenter, was using them. But I never even thought for a minute to straighten my hair. <laughs> I'd sort of grown up with this big hair is great. And, of course, my mother was a 60s, you know, she was a uh, grew up in the 60s, miniskirts and massive beehive hairdo, and she still has it to this day. <laughs> so, of course, big hair was the thing for me. So I went around with a crash helmet on. <laughs> For most of my, you know, later teens. It's so embarrassing when I look at the pictures. Awful. <laughs> you mentioned the audition process there. The Blue Peter presenter audition process is famous for being a bit unconventional, making people do an interview while they're on a trampoline or making mm. something or, or doing something with an animal. What was your audition like? You said it was a car crash, but what did you have to do? Uh, I remember having to, gosh, I had to make, what was it now? I think I had to make some Easter chicks out of two cotton wool balls and some cardboard, um, which I did okay. And then I had to use a remote control and talk, a remote control car and talk about the car whilst I was trying to control it going in a circle, which I kind of managed to, I think it smashed into a wall. I'm like, oh dear, oh, I've lost control, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> and then the worst bit was coming when I had to do a trampoline, I had to trampoline with, I think they were like one of the British Olympic team members and I had to get up onto the trampoline. Well, of course, I'm quite small and I'd forgotten to bring my leotard. I was told to bring a leotard. I forgot to bring my leotard to the audition and my friend had come with me and she, underneath her skirt, was wearing a bright pair of orange woolen tights. So she said, Leah, put these on, put these on. Oh, so embarrassed. And um, the director just said, just drop the skirt, darling, and walk over to the trampoline. So there I was dressed in my best Valerie Singleton outfit, you know, a long skirt. And I dropped the skirt and walked over. Well, of course, woolen tights have this great big sort of arch shaped seam <laughs> on, the, on the back, on the backside. And there I am walking over to this trampoline and I couldn't get on. I got one leg up, one leg down and this massive orange arse hanging over the trampoline <laughs> with this big arch of a seam on the backside. And I was pulled up and I just sort of like made jokes and jumped up and down and, and that was it I got the job I honestly thought when I was embarrassingly putting my skirt back on after the we'd wrapped I thought well that's the last time I'll ever get a chance to come here again and then literally it was one of those we'll let you know darling we'll let you know and then I think it was like a week later I can't even remember how I was told I don't even remember it <laughs> that's strange <laughs> I get annoyed with myself because I think when people say how did you feel when you were told who phoned you was it the BBC was it Biddy who who phoned you can't remember. Isn't that awful? I can't remember how I was told I got the job. But of course, it was huge celebration for the whole family, lots of squealing and running around. And it changed my life. Yeah. So 
Of course, an iconic feature of Blue Peter, which I think was a big part of his success, was all the makes. <laughs> which again, for non-British listeners, was when you'd either cook something or make something useful out of household waste. And it spawned the famous catchphrase, here's one I made earlier, where you'd whip out the finished item. Uh, and I made everything. Oh, did you? That was made on the show. I love Blue Peter. I was avid viewer. I think I made I made a chocolate mayonnaise cake. Oh. There was a Filofax. Oh, the Filofax, yes. A Barbie barbecue type thing which is yes. very topical again now um and i'm sure sales of sticky back plastic must have gone through the roof in the 80s yeah. and 90s although i never had any um did you enjoy the makes or was it something you dreaded doing it depended what it was i mean if it was a cookery one no because i was absolutely useless i don't know what it was i just seemed to have this curse on me and of course there's a very famous clip that comes out every pancake day which is me sort of making a mess of a pancake and uh, it was because the pan wasn't hot enough. And that's what I mean, if, because you're live on air. So they sabotaged you is what you're saying. Oh, no, no, it was, it was just a mess. So every time there was anything cooking involved, I was like, oh, God. And, of course, you go in and you rehearse, and what people don't realise is underneath the desk, there's one person on their knees to the left of you and one person to the knee, on their knees to the right of you. And when the camera is on me, on my face, they're actually sliding in the next <laughs> stage that's, that they've prepared. And then I, it was, oh, look how magically that has appeared. And then I'll add some cheese and then I'll say, and once you've done that, and then you'll move that off out of camera cut to my face and then <laughs> the poor person on my left a hand will come in and then they'll slide the next stage in you know so you look marvelous you look like you've made all these things but sometimes it doesn't work well I remember me and Mark Curry uh, another fabulous co-host of mine we were teaching people how to wrap Christmas presents but what happened was we put the sellotape on the edge of the desk and we'd leant against it. So, of course, all the sticky tape was stuck to the desk. And we were like, going, oh, and then we started laughing and then we couldn't stop laughing. Oh, my God. I think we got such a serious telling off after that. So there's lots of things that have gone wrong, you know. And animals, you're working with animals on Blue Peter, you know. Yes. Oh, my God, I've been weed on, sicked on, pooed on, everything. You just, and whenever, I don't know what it was, the cat. We had two ladies that looked after the animals, Leonie Peacock and um, Edith Menezes, two little old ladies. And Edith looked after the cat, Willow, and uh, Leonie looked after Bonnie. And what they used to do was they used to just, give you the cat and you go, I don't want the cat, I don't want the cat today. And they're going to give you the cat and all your lovely clothes that you've gone and bought for the show were just covered in white cat hair. But what they do then is they put cream cheese all over the paws of the dogs and the cats. So they stay sitting, <laughs> licking, lick, lick, lick. So you were covered in hair, covered in cream cheese. And then the cat, whenever it went and the end theme tune finished and you're live, the cat would stand up with its backside in my face and it's tail and I could just see this puckered backside just winking at me and it's I was cursed on that show cursed <laughs> oh, I love the Blue Peter pets I'm sure they were surrogate pets to a lot of people watching who you know who didn't have animals of their own um Bonnie the dog you mentioned when you given her to look after in the early days I was yes I was given her and uh, I didn't want her. <laughs> I didn't want her. I was 18. I didn't want the responsibility of a dog, and not just a dog, the most famous dog in the country, to look after. And I, why would you want that responsibility? I didn't want that responsibility. Um, it was forced on me and didn't last long because I basically said, no, I'm, I'll leave. It's not fair. Because poor Bonnie was pining for Leone, mm. her owner, every night, scratching at the door, whining. It was too upsetting. So I, I just said, you can't do this. It's not fair on the dog. And, and it's not fair on me because I, I'm too young. I don't want the responsibility of the Blue Peter dog, for goodness sake. You know, imagine how many hearts would be broken if anything had happened to her. Mm. You know, it'd be national mourning. You know, Yvette Fielding kills the Blue Peter dog by accidentally letting her off the lead in a park and she's gone. Mm. You know, I, did, I just couldn't bear that. Yeah. So my mum only ever wanted two things for me when I was a child. Mm. One was to marry Prince William, which needless to say did not happen. <laughs> And the second thing was to be a Blue Peter presenter. And um, and every time someone would leave, she'd say to me, oh, maybe you should audition. And, and this actually continued up until I was 25. <laughs> but, but I did actually work at Blue Peter. Oh, did you? Twice I did work experience um, on the show. 
or an internship, as I use friends would call it, once when I was 16 and then again when I was 19. And funnily enough, yeah. the first time was also thanks to Biddy Baxter too. She got me in. And um, and they dressed me up as a chicken. Uh, although I did get to make George the Tortoise's hibernation box, which was the one that we ah. made earlier that was slid in. Yeah. And for my efforts, I was rewarded with the iconic Blue Peter badge, extremely coveted, mm. which I know listeners can't see, but I'm proudly wearing it today. Oh, you are. Look at that. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, and the green badge was introduced shortly after you joined, which was awarded oh. for when people did environmentally friendly things. It's crazy. There are now eight different Blue Peter badges. It's like back in my day, there was just a standard one and a green one, oh, yeah, the gold one, if you did special things. Eight now, eight badges. Too many. I'm assuming you still have your badge. Where, where do you keep it and does it ever come out for special occasions? No, I, I, I keep it on a like a, an old vintage sort of uh, mannequin and I collect brooches. So it sits proudly in the middle. Um, but it's not the original one. I, uh, I went When I went back to do the 60th anniversary, I got another one. And uh, yeah, they're different. They're, they're not the same as, as the one that you've got. It's a different one. Yeah. But in my opinion, there's too many now. I just think it's like, yeah, it's too confusing. Are you admitting that you've lost your Blue Peter badge, your original Blue Peter badge? I have. <gasps> I have. Yes. No, I think I gave it to charity, I think. It was, a good, it was a good cause. There was an apron and there was a badge and I gave them to my husband as a present because he was like, oh my God. And then there was a big charity event for a really good cause. And I thought, Do you know what? Give it to them. And uh, so I went a few years without my Blue Peter badge, but it was for a good cause. And then I, um, and then, like I say, I got, I got another one. Instantly, there is a roaring trade on eBay for Blue Peter badges uh, at the moment. There's, um, I only watched it recently and discovered there was this uh, a music badge. And I was like, a music badge? Where did this come from? Not only do they have a music badge, it's been designed by Ed Sheeran. Oh, right. Um, but it's, it goes for a hundred quid a pop on eBay. Wow, gosh. <laughs> so if you have one of those, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> you were later voted as the nation's favourite Blue Peter presenter of all time. <laughs> with the moment where you rode the revolution roller coaster at Blackpool, yeah. or rather screamed your way through the revolution roller coaster at Blackpool. Yes, my screaming started. <laughs> started early, voted as the yeah. most memorable moment. So, with that in mind of how popular you were with the audience, I find it really interesting that you say, with hindsight, you don't think you should have had the job. No, the audition. No, absolutely not. No. And also, I wasn't, uh, like I say, I was an actress, so I wasn't. I wasn't given any training. I wasn't told how to present. I wasn't given any tips. I was basically left on my own. <laughs> Just get on with it. And uh, it was it was it wasn't a pleasant first year. And that's all I'll say on it. It was it was very very hard. And I actually resigned um, and walked out because I found it really hard going. And I think now, if somebody of my age had gone into television and went through what I went through, I think there'd be quite a few. Um, implications to that mm. it wasn't an easy ride at all but after that first year then I had spent the next four years having an absolute blast it was lovely it was a really great show to work on and I really really enjoyed it and I had some amazing experiences that I'll never forget and I'll always be very blessed and grateful for to have had those experiences so I'm glad I got Blue Peter because it made me who I am today. It sort of moulded me. All the rubbish I went through in the first year made me a stronger person. And I was able to sort of go on and form my own production company and not be scared mm. of some people in the industry. I was able to stand up to them because of what I went through in that first year. But it must have been so difficult because obviously, you know, you were so young. You moved to London, didn't know anyone. You were away from your family. Mm. Um, but also I know the, the producers were quite, harsh with you I know you you were kind of put up in a hotel when you first came down to London you said you didn't have any support um I think you were made to be in bed by 9 p.m and the producers would, would call you to check that you were in bed but so you must have had a, quite a lot of resilience especially at that that young age how did you keep going and not not quit I mean you said you resigned well I didn't kept going <laughs> I didn't I think it was of course you have to remember this is before mobile phones so I would ring my mum up and then hear my mum's voice and burst into tears um, because I was so homesick. And she would say to me, keep going, Yvette, you're all right, keep going. And I just kept thinking, I, I grew up always wanting to please my parents and my bosses. 
you know, I mean, my first job, I, I had a few jobs before I got Blue Peter, you know, working in a bar, working in a dress shop. Uh, I was a dental assistant. And to me, the most important thing was in a job was to please your boss and do the best that you can do. So with my mum saying, keep going, keep going, in my mind, I was thinking, I've just got to keep going. I've just got to please my boss. The problem was, is that I was trying to please my boss so much, but my boss seemed to be, I don't know why, just incredibly cruel. And it was like being this horrible relationship where, please like me, please like me. Mm. Am I doing okay? Am I doing okay? And I thought that I'd be doing okay. And then I was told that I was useless, absolutely useless again and again and again and again. And it got to the point where I just had enough being made to live with the dog. You know, I had no say in it. You will move out of your flat and you will move into this house um, with the dog. A complete stranger. Fortunately, this lady who I moved in with just happened to be one of the loveliest people on the planet. <laughs> so I was incredibly lucky there. And we ended up being brilliant friends, had some fantastic house parties. That was incredibly lucky. But it was a very, 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 very hard time. And like I say, I did resign. And if they hadn't have come back and said, quote, darling, we get the impression you're not very happy. <laughs> yeah, you'd be right there. Uh, I think that if they hadn't have done that, then I would have only been on there a year and I wouldn't have gone back. I was that I'd been pushed to the absolute limit, you know, mm. and I was ready to get in my car and drive back home to Cheshire. I just had enough of being bullied, which is what I was. Mm. I don't suppose when Biddy, Biddy retired was enough momentum to keep you going a bit longer. That was it. That was it. It, it was. Hey, you know, and I, I certainly wasn't on my own. I, I uh, you know, even, and it was weird because when she did leave, this is the thing. Biddy could have been better with, Biddy could have been a hell of a lot better with me in that first year. And she wasn't. And that was the thing. When she was leaving, I actually got a bit emotional because there was this sort of, I wanted to please her so much. I wanted her to be so proud of me. And yet it was like being beaten by a parent. It was like mm. every time I did what I thought was right, she'd come back and she'd say something awful or she'd just berate me in front of other people. And it was just absolutely soul destroying. And there you are, you've got to be confident in front of 8 million people twice a week. And my confidence was just an all time. I was a shaking, gibbering wreck. But because, like I say, she made me stronger in the long run. My God, when I think about it, the amount of nonsense that myself and my husband had to go through when we formed Antics, our production company, to make TV shows, the amount of awful people within the television industry and I always thank Biddy because I think if it wasn't for her <laughs> there's no way I would have stood up and basically told them where to go and been incredibly strong and just got on with it and she did that she gave me the balls to do that and so I thank her for that there's no bitterness there whatsoever uh, in fact it's the other way but when people say to me, oh, wasn't it wonderful? Didn't you have a fabulous time? And I think, no, not the first year. It was horrific. It was like a nightmare. Nightmare. I used to wake up and think, ah, am I dreaming? Oh, God, please make me be dreaming. Make me be back at home, you know. So another iconic feature were the Blue Peter appeals, which were used to raise money for charitable causes through recycling items or the famous bring and buy sales. We did a few of those at my school. But something that you did that had a personal effect on me I remember one episode where you talked about having vitiligo and at the time I had a skin condition where I had different coloured patches of skin and I felt like a bit of the odd one out at school. But seeing you on TV made me feel a bit more normal because Yvette had different coloured patches of skin too. Uh, so thank you for that, even though I imagine it was probably a big deal for you to talk about it on TV at, at a young age. It was and I'm so pleased you brought that up because again, we go back to Biddy and it was, I had no say in the matter. <laughs> It was, you will go on television and you will pull your skirt up, show your legs, show where you've been like. I mean, I was mortified, absolutely mortified. Um, and yet, how right she was. She said to me, she said, darling, darling, this would be marvellous, marvellous. There'd be so many children out there. Trust me, trust me, but Biddy, I, I really don't want No, you're doing it. It's going to be fine. I was mortified by doing it. And yet, this is how savvy she was. 
because like you, we had sackfuls of letters coming in from children with skin disorders saying that they feel a little bit more confident, you know, if I can do it, then they can do it type thing. So she was so right on so many so many things, you know. I mean, you wouldn't be allowed to get away with that now. You can't force a TV presenter to bear their flesh, you know, and go, oh, I really don't want to, I really don't want to. No, no, please don't make me. Yes, you will. Get in there and do it. You know, it just wouldn't happen today. But then I didn't have a say. And so I did it. But I'm glad I did do it because like yourself, it helped you. And that's that's where her genius came in. You know, she was very, very clever that way. And also one of the great things about being a Blue Peter presenter is that you did get to do a bunch of stuff you otherwise wouldn't do. Mm. Although maybe some of it is under duress, as you mentioned. But you tried things like dog training, water skiing, you bobsled with the British bobsled team in Germany, interview Princess Diana, you learned to fly a Sea King helicopter. And of course, there were the Blue Peter summer expeditions. What was the most rewarding for you? Oh, there's so many. Um, I suppose flying the Sea King helicopter Going to HMS Cold Rose in Cornwall um, with the Navy, going on the simulator, learning how to fly a seeking helicopter, and then actually getting on the real thing and flying the real thing was just an incredible moment that I'll, I'll never, ever forget when the pilot said to me, right, you're in control. I, I said, sorry? He said, you are in complete control of this aircraft. And I was, and I flew it. And I was just like, oh, wow, it's amazing. And then the bobsleigh team thing, that was so funny. Uh, I ended up making great friends with them. And the house that I moved to with the dog, do you remember I said I moved in with a lovely lady? We ended up having a house party. They knocked on the door, they opened the door, and there they all are. Hooray! Bobsleigh team. <laughs> Bobsleigh team came in, and we ended up, all of us, the whole party, the police were called. <laughs> but I think they joined in with a conga line with the British bobsleigh team. We were all doing a conga line down, down the street. Yeah, it was, it, it, I had su such great memories. Yeah, really, really fantastic opportunities. And like I say, we're incredibly grateful. Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Genevieve here. Just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener, thank you for hitting that play button again. And if this is your first time here, welcome. You have five whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on. So if you haven't already, go and check out some of the episodes you may have missed. And please do follow and subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, stick around at the end to find out how. Now, back to the latted zone. So you left Blue Peter in 1992 after five years, which, to be fair, was the longest stint a presenter had been on the show since Simon Groom's eight-year run over the end of the 70s and early 80s. Mm. What was behind your decision to leave? I was exhausted, absolutely exhausted. Um, I did a summer expedition all on my own, which, as far as I'm aware, I think was a first. John Leslie, at the time, who was another co-presenter, I think he was... I don't know what had happened, but he was dating Catherine Zeta-Jones at the time. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yes, yeah, so he was dating her. And I think something had happened where he'd sort of demanded that he have the summer off because him and Catherine were going away somewhere. And Diane Louise Jordan, she'd also said, I'm not doing it. And so they said, Yvette, we need to do a summer expedition. Please, can you do it? So I said, of course, of course. So I was six weeks away. But prior to that, I had gone to Seville to interview Princess Diana. It was sort of a live show that we did there. And then I think I just before that, I'd gone somewhere else, like to Romania, I'd gone to Seville, did the live show. Then the next day, fly out, or the next few days, fly out to New Zealand. I spent six weeks in New Zealand and I was absolutely shattered. I hadn't had a day off. I hadn't even had a chance to do any laundry. It was just a nightmare. And I, I was finding it very frustrating because... I wanted to be involved with more of the script writing and more sort of, of the when we were doing filming, I would come up with ideas, but I was always sort of like poo-pooed really. And, oh, no, no, you know, I've written it like this. You will say it like this. And I'd say, yeah, but I wouldn't say it like that. I would say it like this. I'm never argumentative at all. But in my mind, I was thinking, I'm just getting a bit frustrated. And so that was the reason why. So it was, a, it, it was those two reasons. It was just exhaustion and it was, I mean, it sounds very sort of, oh, listen to her traveling around the world. How lucky to she is. But it wasn't that. As soon as you got off the plane with jet lag, you had to do a piece to camera. 
you had to learn a long piece of camera and you had to get and I think that that piece of camera I remember it was on a um I was talking about um, some sort of history of long boats in the area or something 22 takes it took 22 takes I could not wow. I was so tired I looked exhausted <laughs> <laughs> and it was just constant, constant, constant having to be on camera for, I'd say, oh my God, I'd say a good 12 weeks. It was, it was solid. And so, um, I told the producers in New Zealand, I said, I'm thinking of leaving. I said, I'm so tired. And they tried to persuade me to stay. And I said, no, I'm, I don't want to. I've done five years. You know, it's time for me to move on. And I hadn't a clue what I was going to do. And then fortunately, I got a phone call from ITV. Would I like to go and have a chat with some new producers about a children's Saturday morning show called What's Up Doc? Loved it. And so I went <laughs> and I just went to have a chat with them. They didn't audition me or anything. And it was with the two best producers I've ever worked with, um, Vanessa Hill and Jed Allen. And they just sat with me and talked and said, you know, how do you feel about having a bit more of a laugh? And how do you feel about inputting some, you know, maybe in the script? I was like, this is a dream come true. So I said, yes, of course. Well, of course, the BBC were not happy with me at all because, A, I was leaving, said I was leaving, but I was going to ITV. How dare I? So um, I left on a bit of a sour note, really. And it was a couple of, was it a year later? I think Lewis Bronze, who was the new editor then, uh, said, oh, can we meet for lunch? So we went to meet for lunch in Chiswick and he just said, he back. He said, I just want to say how sorry we are at the way that we treated you when you left because that wasn't right and we're very, very sorry. So that was sweet. So that was a very That's sweet nice. thing to do. So off I went to ITV. Loved What's Up, Doc. Such like classic anarchic kids <laughs> TV. I watched this clip on YouTube the other day where you had Jason Priestley as a guest and he just looked like completely bemused, like he had no clue what was going on whatsoever. Nobody did. <laughs> Nobody did at all. I mean, we had like Danny Minogue at one point. She had a hit in the charts. And I and I said, is there any way I could be one of the backing dancers? And she went, yeah, sure. So I actually learned the backing dancers. I said, I don't want the camera. Just leave the camera so they think that I'm one of the backing dancers. And you can actually see it. <laughs> you can actually see me doing the moves, giving it what for. I loved it. Absolutely fantastic. So it was really ad hoc. Anybody could join in. And the whole camera crew loved it. And I think when it moved to Scotland, I remember because it was filmed in Maidstone in Kent in the, in the studios there, people were crying, absolutely bereft because we'd had such a laugh. I mean, we all went out for dinner together. It was such a great, wonderful feeling. I, I was very, very upset, you know, when that came to an end, especially with Jed and Vanessa left. They didn't go to Scotland and we had new producers. And that for me was when it all fell apart, you know, because it wasn't the same. You know, you didn't have the backbone. You didn't have the people that had thought of this crazy anarchic show. You know, you had people trying to step in and it just didn't work. It wasn't the same. So after What's Up Doc, you had what you've described as, as your wilderness years, like where you'd had a couple of tough years. Mm. You just become a single mum to your young son, Will, after divorcing your first husband. And it coincided with a downturn in TV work, which led you to having to go on the dole for a bit. And I guess that's an occupational hazard when there are only so many presenting jobs on TV at that time with few fewer TV channels. But that must be rough when you're, you know, you've just been one of the most recognisable faces on TV, just like, you know, a year before. And then that happens. Yeah, that was a bit of a, I, I remember having an ulcer. <laughs> I was so ill. I was like, oh my God, I can't, I, I, I'm in so much pain. I had an ulcer. I was very poorly. I dropped down to, I think it was seven stone, seven and a half stone, unbeknownst to me, undiagnosed illness that I'd had called Graves disease for most of my, <laughs> from when I was sort of 18 onwards, I hadn't a clue. You know, I was I was ill a lot. You know, I had a lot of all sorts of tummy bugs, uh, colds, flus, everything. I had my immune system. I didn't have one. So I was very poorly. And of course, going through all of that and suddenly thinking, oh, my God, no work's coming in, you know. And I remember my agent at the time saying, well, it's Blue Peter. You sort of, you know, stamped with that Blue Peter image and nobody wants that. And I was like, yeah, I know, but I've done what's up. Doc. Yeah, I know. But Blue Peter still sticks in everybody's mind. OK, OK. But it was I think it was it was only about a year. Uh, I can't remember exactly. But I remember thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I've got to look after my child. I've got to pay a mortgage. I didn't know what to do. So I got a teaching job in a posh school in Chelsea. And uh, it was I didn't get paid. She said, well, we'll the headmistress said, well, we'll do two weeks. You can be in the drama department. We'll do two weeks unpaid and see if you like it. And I said, fantastic, fantastic. Well, that's great. 
And so within that short period of time, I was on the dole because they helped to pay my mortgage. I think it was about two months they paid my mortgage. I was like, thank God for that. And then, um, and then the phone rang and it was my agent saying, would you like to do a pantomime? It's only a short run. It's over Christmas, three weeks. Would you like to do it? But it's really good money. I thought, fantastic. So I went to the headmistress and I said, look, I've been given this opportunity. We're off on holiday anyway. I said, I'm just letting you know, are you okay with it? No, you're either a teacher or an actress. It's up to you. <laughs> and I went, okay, then I said, well, I need the money. So I'm going to be going to do the panto. So I left that. I didn't even get paid for doing that, but I did enjoy it. I love working with children. And so that was that. So, and then from then on, after that, so weirdly, and it was weird, just the phone just didn't stop ringing. It was so it was very bizarre. It was it was a sort of like say a wilderness year, or I don't know how long it was, but it, I always think of it as longer than it actually was. But when I look at it, it actually wasn't that long in the grand scheme of things. But it was a frightening time. I remember pushing my son to the uh, to, was it the post office or somewhere I can't remember to go and get my milk tokens. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I'm getting milk tokens. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I used to be like, but does anybody recognize me? Oh, my God, I'm collecting my milk tokens, you know, that type of thing. But now I just think, no, you know, I did what I had to do. Yeah. But thankfully, the presenting dry spell didn't last too long. And, <laughs> uh, and then you, made, you easily made the transition from presenting kids TV to adult audiences. And in 1998, you fronted the BBC Daily Medical live show, City Hospital, which I loved watching as a university student. It was perfect daytime TV viewing. It was brilliant. I think they should bring it back. But it was there that you met cameraman Carl Beatty, who, of course, became your now husband. And yeah. he proposed to you live on air. So no pressure to say yes then. I know. I often say to him, God, blimey, why didn't you tell me? I would have worn something much more appropriate. I had a great big black cowl neck sweater on with me. I mean, it was really wide as it was long, you know. Uh, it looked like my boobs were where my knees were. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, 25 years in May next year, we're celebrating our anniversary. So we've been together 26 years next year. So we get remarried every 10 years. We go and get our vows redone, and uh, which we enjoy. Since we've mentioned Carl, let's talk about the show you created together that's brought you worldwide fame, crowned you the first lady of the paranormal and really set the foundations for all the paranormal shows we see on TV today, which is, of course, the TV phenomenon that is Mace Haunted, uh, which has seen you ghost hunting and scaring the living daylights out of yourselves, viewers and various celebrities who come along for the ride for the past 21 years. And for an idea that you came up with after a friend happened to mention a haunted building to you, in passing, that has gone on to be sold in more than 100 territories around the world. I'm, I'm amazed that you had real trouble initially getting it off the ground because no TV channel wanted it, did they? No, no, they didn't. Six months of knocking on every TV station's door. And they were like, no, no, no. I think even Channel 5 said it's an unprofessional genre. <laughs> it's like, oh, give us a break. And uh, when it, of course, when it went nuts, I remember we were at the uh, RTS Awards or some awards and uh, no, it was the Broadcast Television Awards and we were sort of nominated for something. We didn't get it, but we were mentioned as uh, saving a uh, living TV, saving a channel, which was lovely. And I remember all the people that had said no to us came up to the table and was going, congratulations, congratulations. And <laughs> let's have a chat. Let's have a meeting. Have you got any other ideas? Oh, let's have a chat. Let's have a chat. And I remember being at that meeting and thinking, God, I hate this industry. <laughs> <laughs> it's like your Julia Roberts pretty woman moment where you're going to be like, remember me? Big mistake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I just, it was so false. It is such a false, uh, as you well know, it's full of, you know, you can't trust people. You can't, you know, it's only once in a blue moon, you'll come across some absolute golden nuggets like my Jed and Vanessa, you know, who are really lovely, genuine people that just absolutely love creating stuff. They love, they're very passionate about what they do. And it's only, it's very rare that you come across that. And I've only met a few people, Jed and Vanessa being two of them that have been like that. But going back to Most Haunted, it was, it's so true. You know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And it was just a colleague of Carl's. Uh, he'd been working with him and uh, Carl said, oh, he said, uh, you know, I'm so sort of fed up. He said, because Yvette and I have put a lot of money into this, our savings and, you know, we've run out of money and we need to sell this program. He said, I just don't know what's wrong with it. He said, I can't sell it to anybody. And this friend said, well, why don't you take it to Arch Dyson? Now, Arch Dyson was the head of sort of Maidstone Studios 
and other channels that were on the television at the time. And he was in charge of FlexTech, which was a big media corporation that owned lots of channels uh, on the television, satellite channels. So Carl went to see him and he was a bit nervous because if you've ever met Arch Dyson, he's quite a formidable character. He's quite a big chap, you know, bald head. And uh, yes, it was a VHS then. And Carl sort of said, hi, Arch, I wonder if you could give me 10, 15 minutes of your time. He slid the VHS across the desk to Arch. Arch put it in, never said anything. It was a 20 minute tape of the pilot. And uh, never said a word. And Carl thought, oh, he's going to say it's rubbish. And pulled it out, slid the tape back across to Carl and just said, I'll have it. He said, living TV basically is on its arse. He said, it's, it needs something. He said, this just could be mad enough to save it. So I'd like to commission it. Let's give you 16 to start with. And Carl phoned me. And I remember the moment because I was picking up Lego bricks in the front room. Carl was going to, from there, he was going to the airport because he was doing some filming. And he phoned me from the airport and he just said, we've got it. We've sold it. And I remember dropping to my knees and falling on the Lego. And I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> the most painful experience known to man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was crying and laughing at the same time. I couldn't believe that we'd start. I just couldn't, we both couldn't believe that we'd actually done it. And we only thought it would make one series. We never in a million years that we'd still be making them 21 years later, you know, and we are, it's, it's insane. And we'd offer a theatre tour. And it's, it's just incredible. The fans are still with us and still love the show. It's 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 mental. Wonderful. Yeah. So I was supposed to say, hugely successful around the world. And it's spawned books, a US series, even Saturday Night Live did a skit about the show with yeah. Laurie and Amy Poehler was you. You have the most haunted experience where you invite people to spend the night with you to experience paranormal activity. The stage shows, which you just mentioned, which recently kicked off and that's travelling around the country until next May. And I know that you were a sceptic at first until knives started being thrown at you and things burst into flames and objects started moving across the rooms by themselves. Um, So now you are a believer that there is uh, another side. So it must be disappointing when things like when former team member Derek Agora, who famously was exposed on the show as a fake psychic, or when Ofcom said the show wasn't to be taken seriously, and especially when people who claim to be former team members or crew members post on social media that the show is faked, how does that make you feel? Well, it makes me feel, I mean, it used to really upset me. I mean, when we found out that Derek was a fake, we were, I mean, I think I cried the first time because I had told him things about my deceased relatives and he told me things back. Nothing major that made me go, oh my God, there was nothing specific he told me, but he told me things like she's in a lovely place, she's in a great place, she's in a this, you, do, do you know what I mean? Mm. And so you, you, you hang on to those words. Gave you comfort. Yes, it did. So it did give me comfort, but I felt cheated and I felt lied to. And also being on camera and him, you know, going into these alleged possessions and becoming very threatening to me and the team members to the point where it actually hurt us. And we just thought that ah, there's something going on. This is so bad. So that, that was upsetting. It was very upsetting, but it was also hurtful to the show because I think it was the Daily Mirror that ran Most Haunted is Faked. But when you actually read the story, that was about Derek. But the headline didn't do us any favours at all. And then the Ofcom ruling came in. They watched the show because of Derek and the fakery. They watched the show and said, no, we've decided that this is for entertainment purposes only. And that was absolutely soul-destroying for us because it is real. It's a real investigation. We don't make it as a television show. We make it as a – it's an investigation. And we film as we go along. And that's why Carl came up with the idea of doing Most Haunted Experience because we wanted to say to the public, look – this isn't fake. This is real. Why don't you come along and see for yourself? And so I think we've been running for eight years now, most of the experience. We have people on social media say, it's a load of rubbish. It's fake. It's fake. I will always say, right, come to Shrewsbury Prison or come to a location. Come with me and I'll show you it's not fake. And then they go, uh, okay, uh, well, no, can't make it that now, but thanks so much. We've had journalists come here to the house and watched the knocking and uh, the phenomena that we get on the show and it happens here as well and that's wonderful to see the journalists be completely bamboozled with what's going on and we always encourage scientists and journalists and members of the public to join the team to show 
everybody that it is not fate. And I, I'm so passionate about it because it is real. And I feel not just Derek, but lots of other mediums that have been on the show, they've done a, such a, a harm. The reputation of the show has been harmed because of them, because of them being fake. And that's what upsets me. The only psychic that will I, I will ever work with is Brian Shepard, who is just, he's the real deal. He just blows my mind and is a good friend. But we, we don't like to work with psychics. I'm not saying psychic, they're not real. A lot of them are and really, really good. But we just, for some bizarre reason, picked an awful lot of them that were finding out information and regurgitating it and pretending that they were getting it from somewhere else, somewhere divine, which was very upsetting, you know. And I'm always very sort of, I think I'm a very friendly, open person. And so you're trusting these people and you're talking to them and you're, you're letting your, you're opening yourself and, you know, you're becoming friends and you invite them to your home and you go out for dinner and this, that and the other. And then they just shit on you and you're just like, oh, thanks so much. <laughs> You know, so you, you then become a bit guarded. You become, you know, a little bit, oh, I don't, I don't want to trust anybody, which is, is not the way it should be, really. So I tend to sort of still be open and happy and come on in and please don't be like anybody else. <laughs> you know, I mean, I agree that there are things that can't be explained. I've spoken about it before on the podcast, but we've had a few spooky occurrences in our previous house, which was built on the site of an old psychiatric hospital. Oh, so we've had like the TV turning itself on and off in the middle of the night. One night my husband was my husband was woken up by a noise. And then we were in bed, obviously, and he felt a depression on the bottom corner of the bed by his feet as if someone was sitting, had just sat down on it. So he did what any grown man would do. He cuddled up to me for safety and pretended it wasn't happening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But even in our current house, which was also built on on the site of a former hospital, Incidentally, we live near Enfield and obviously we've got our own poltergeist there. Oh, you do choose them, don't you? Blooming heck. Yeah. Um, our cats will sense something and both stop and look at something that we can't see or hear. Yeah. But obviously they know it's there because they're doing something. So, it's, yeah. you know, there, there is stuff that you can't explain. Of course, yeah. And it's always great when somebody like yourself experiences something because I always say seeing is believing until you've seen or experienced something yourself how can you believe it Mm. you know how can you believe in this faith which is a different thing but for me anything to do with the paranormal ufo any anything like that you've got to see and experience something for yourself and then make up your mind you know so i guess kind of like like as a blue peter presenter where you have to be able to try your hand at anything you've had such a varied career you had a, a show on Kerrang! Radio, had a stint in the jungle on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Uh, you've been on Celebrity Mastermind, MasterChef. You did Stars in Their Eyes as Annie Lennox, which was amazing, by the way. I thought you really, really sounded like her. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and you have three podcasts now, I think. There's uh, the Paranormal Activity, Anytime podcast with Glenn and your new pod, The Nun's Knickers. <laughs> uh, but as a presenter, it must be a constant effort to try and stay relevant to essentially stay employed and earn a living. How have you managed it, especially as you get older, the industry tends to discard women once they get over 45? I imagine my career is, I put it in a cardboard box, I tape it up and I label it Yvette's career and I put it in the bottom of my wardrobe and that's where it is. And as far as I'm concerned, my I've had my career, that's it, I've done it. I'm 55 years old and I'm incredibly happy and very, very content I only do things that I want to do now. I mean, I'm incredibly lucky to be able to do that. It's because I work my bollocks off (laughs) from my early, from being very young. I work really, really hard. I've saved. And so now I can sit back and go, no, I only want to do what I want to do. I'm not one of these people that is craving to be on television or craving attention. I'm very happy just being at home and writing my books And that's what I love doing. I love being at home. Uh, I love being with my husband. I love filming Most Haunted. I love doing Most Haunted Experiences. I love doing what I love to do, which is anything to do with the paranormal. I, I adore it. Going off on a Saturday night and going to an old manor house or an old castle and meeting, you know, 50 fans of Most Haunted and we're all there in the dark, you know, with our torches. Oh, what was that? What was that? Fantastic. And by the end of the night, we're all best friends. It's fa- it's such a lovely, it's a great night out. 
I love it so much. I do that twice a month. Carl does them every weekend. He's addicted. <laughs> and just we're just so so very very lucky to be able to be in that situation. So I'm never trying to be relevant. I don't want to be mixed up in that. I I hate social media. The only good thing about it is talking to the fans, but I don't like all this. Oh, I don't know. You know, sort of, like you say, trying to be relevant, I can't bear it. It's just like, I am who I am. If you like me, you'll follow me or you'll be interested in what I do. But I'm certainly not one of these people that's out there pushing themselves or trying to get on a new show or this, that and the other. And the most important thing for me is, is about helping people. So we do a thing here at home where privately through friends, if somebody has had a very hard time with a bereavement, they'll be brought here. And Carl and I will put them in touch with that person that's passed on. And that for me is just, oh my God, it's a gift from God. I just think that to me is the most amazing thing to be able to help people and put them in touch with their loved ones is, I think is a gift that you shouldn't really keep to yourself. If you can help people, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Helping others, you know. Mm -hmm. So on the life front, as opposed to the career, there's a perception that as women, we should just put up with pain in our lives from period pain to childbirth pain has been normalized and treated as an inconvenience that we just have to endure rather than not actually have to suffer it and i mention it because you did something which i think is really great to take control of pain which was you elected to have a partial hysterectomy mm. in 2008 when you were 40 could you talk a little bit about your decision behind that yeah i was just in so much pain we were doing live most haunted shows and I'd be absolutely crippled and in so much pain during advert breaks. I was running into the loo and it was uh, one of the PAs on the show. And she just took one look at me. She said, Yvette, she said, you're normally pale. She said, but you look like you're about to keel over. She said, you need to go and talk to somebody. You need to get a hysterectomy. And so I went to a doctor and told them everything. I mean, I couldn't, you know, when it was my time of the month, I couldn't leave the house unless we were filming. And even then, you know, it was so uncomfortable. Change of clothing had to be taken everywhere. It was it was awful. And the pain was horrific. And I knew I didn't want any more children. Carl didn't want any more children. So that was fine. And it was the best decision I'd ever made in my life. It really made my life a lot better. And I, I didn't dread the monthly menstruals you know it was because it, it was probably made me cry I was like, oh my god it's going to be hell and I, I'm very worried for my daughter Mary because she's sort of struggling a little bit with that my grandmother did as well my grandmother had a terrible terrible time with it so I just think well you know obviously goes back generations and and I think when you've had your children if you want children if you've had your children women will say to me what's it like do you think I should get a hysterectomy and I, I always say if you're in great pain and it's making your life an absolute misery then do it. It's the best decision I've ever made in my life. It works for me anyway. Your daughter, Mary, who you just mentioned and also joined the Most Haunted team, uh, she's now a medic for the RAF and your son, Will, is now living in LA pursuing his music career. But you also dipped your toe in the music industry because you managed my Eskimo Will's band, which made headlines in 2010 because it was the band that Harry Styles left to join One Direction after auditioning for X Factor. So if they say <laughs> di if they say directors are frustrated actors, are band managers frustrated pop stars? <laughs> I definitely, I think so. I absolutely. It's so funny. I absolutely. I've, I've always been into music, always, and I actually wanted to be in a band, and I was in a band, and I lasted all of about, oh, my God, we did one gig, and I hid behind the speaker because the guitar string broke, everything fell apart, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed, and that didn't go very far. And who hasn't jumped around their bedroom with a hairbrush or a hairdryer or pretending they were Madonna or Elvis or something? You know, we've all been there. We've all done it. So for me, i always been into music, and I saw this band and saw this huge potential and thought, right, come on. There's so many ma managers and, and people within the music industry that aren't <laughs> a bit like TV in a way. They're, they're not who they say they are and it, it can be quite corrupt. So you've got to be very careful. And here you are plunging your, you know, your baby, your child into the music industry. So I thought, hang on a minute, what if I manage them? So I started my own record label 
And yeah, I'm very proud of what I did for the band. They're the only band to have played the Cavern in Liverpool that weren't a covers band, you know, and they, they did that every sort of, was it every three weeks they got the gig there? It was fantastic. Uh, we did lots of different things. Carl shot all the videos for them and uh, we got them played on Sunday brunch and, you know, some, some good gigs. And then I was getting a bit sort of like, oh gosh, getting a bit tired because I was doing Most Haunted and you know, record labels and I was going to conferences learning about how to be a good music manager and oh my god and it was just it was a lot so I was thinking oh we need somebody else to manage them so I was sort of passing the baton then to different managers and and but always <laughs> not being an interfering mother but I was always sort of in the background <laughs> in the background going what are they having you do now why aren't you wearing this? Why aren't you wearing that? And because I'm such a huge, huge Beatles fan, I was sort of got them into wearing the sort of the classic black and, you know, the black suits with the white shirts and the black ties. And they look so smart. Skinny tie. Yes, yeah, skinny tie. And they look so, so smart. And that, that really worked for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of what we did. I always think, oh, it's a shame we couldn't get them any higher. Or, and it was always a closed door always a closed door the door would always be slammed in your face but I thought I've been here before with Most Haunted so I just sort of like got the bit between my teeth and was just really annoying to so many people and <laughs> it was an interesting an interesting journey and one that I did enjoy but I think it's the music industry is actually in my opinion worse than television you know really really hard work very hard and and the amount of times you say Oh, you're going to ring me back. I'd like to know if the, if the band can do this gig at this or, or is Sony, are you going to come and see the band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to come and see the band. We're going to no phone calls. They wouldn't show no apologies, no nothing. And that just, it was time and time and time and time again when people would promise you something and then they just wouldn't have the courtesy to let you know they weren't coming. So of course you've got these four young lads so excited because I don't know, EMI or Sony or whoever was coming to watch them. And you were so excited. Oh my God, my God, they're going to come. They're going to and then nothing. And then they're watching them broken hearted. And, it, you know, it happens all over the world to so many bands, you know. So, uh, yeah, been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about now. You've been writing nonfiction books since 2006 and wrote your first children's book, Archie the Ghost Hunter, in 2019, before beginning your Ghost Hunter Chronicles young adult series. I can see a theme here, <laughs> uh, which is kind of like a ghostly Stranger Things in terms of being the main characters are three 13-year-olds, Eve, Tom and Clavis, who in the first book unleash something after doing a Ouija board uh, and in the second tackle the ghost of Jack the Ripper. And you've just released the third in the series, The Witches of Pendle, based on the famous Pendle witch trials and also based on your own paranormal experiences, which you had when you visited Pendle Hill with Most Wanted. So you got a lot of material there. Yeah, <laughs> I like to base... so. The, the books, I like to use some of the paranormal activity that I've experienced and put that into the book. So, of course, I, I thought most people, fans of Most Haunted, will know of the Pendle Hill live show that we did where every member of the crew, I think there were three of us left standing, but they all were unconscious, dropped to the floor, had to be carried out because they all felt their throats were being, felt they were being choked. And so I thought, right, I've got to somehow get that into the, to this story. And so that's what the main sort of paranormal activity is. It's possession and it's these poor people sort of, uh, you know, feeling like they're being choked. And it is the main protagonist is the ghost of Elizabeth Demdike. She's the only one of the Pendle witches. She wasn't hanged. She actually died in the dungeon at, at Lancaster Castle. But she's the only one that said, I am a witch. She admitted to it where all the others were, bless them, they were just normal folk. Innocence. Innocent, you know, making lotions and potions. I mean, one of them, Alice Nutter, she was a neighbour. She'd just come by and sat down and said, I'm just here to talk about the sheep. <laughs> and uh, uh, Noel, the magistrate, turned up with all these guys and, and because she was in the same room, basically, I'm, you know, making it a very small story here, but basically saw Alice within this room and went, well, you must be a witch as well. And the poor woman got hanged. She had nothing to do with anything. And the others were just making lotions and potions from plants and so on, apocryphy. And, but of course, it was deemed. <gasps> and the king at the time was incredibly terrified of witchcraft. So, of course, this all was all happening at the same time. So these poor, innocent people um, were sort of used really as a kind of, this is what will happen to you if you dabble in this sort of thing. Uh, but Elizabeth Demdike, she was the one that, that said, I am a witch. And uh, when we did the show, she came through on a Ouija board 
<laughs> and was very adamant that she, you know, she was going to harm us all and so on and so on. And then uh, I don't know how long it was. So many months later, we did a live in London, in London. And uh, she came through on a Ouija board then. I'm going to, I'm coming to get you, basically. <laughs> so I was like, right, okay. So, yeah, so that's an interesting. So I've, I've really enjoyed it was a difficult one to write than the other books because there were so many characters in it to the point where when I wrote the first draft, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is far too complicated. So I had to slash, slash <laughs> the book that I'd written and start over again, you know. So it, it was tricky. And I also had to be quite sensitive because these were real people. You know, they were they were real people and, and, and their relatives, you know, descendants of theirs are still alive. So you have to treat it very carefully. And, and they were very poor. It's a sad, very, very sad story. Mm. I noticed that this book is darker than the first two and also longer. Mm. And it reminded me a bit of Harry Potter in terms of how every book was, was more pages than the last. <laughs> and Prisoner Azkaban, which was also the third book, also turned darker in tone. Um, and I know you're writing a fourth book about Vlad the Impaler. Can we expect that to be twice as long? You know so much. Know. You, you know so much. Can we expect that one to be twice as long and then another three books after that and then maybe a film or a TV series? <laughs> Well, wouldn't that be nice, eh? I think the the three characters, Eve, Tom and Clovis, they're getting older, they're seeing more, so of course, and also this world is opening up a little bit more that I've invented in my head. And of course, there's more to it. There's a bigger story. There's there's more to it. That, that, you know, it's, it's the classic good and bad. Bad's trying to, you know, overtake the world and so on. And are the good going to be able to stop the bad in time? All of that. So, yes, it probably will be a little bit bigger because I have to expand on what's what's happened so far. Little nuggets here and there, you know. So I've got to go out and I've got to go and buy a huge, great big pin board. And it's going to look like a crime scene investigation here, you know, with, with, the, with the bits of string going to this person. Yeah, string and photographs. And so I've got to do that for the next book. I'm on chapter three writing the next book. And I've just finished writing Most Haunted Theatres, which comes out this year, and then Most Haunted Castles, which comes out next year as well. So I've just literally just been rehearsals for the theatre show, doing the theatre show, heading, heading computer, writing books, and then doing podcasts. And then walking the dog, Watson, who farts and belches. <laughs> And the husband as well. So that's it. So my life is... He's a handful, yeah. Is it? He is, he is. And I love it when my daughter comes home from RAF, the RAF, and she comes home most weekends. And it's so lovely to see her. And she's doing such a great job in the RAF. And she's thoroughly enjoying it. And just hope we don't go to war. <laughs> Yes, no. let's put Putin in a box as well. Put him in your cupboard. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. I really enjoyed the book. I like how each one is... Well, you've read it. Is, um, I have. I have read it, yes. Oh. I, I like I like how each book is standalone as well. So if you start with this latest one, um, it still makes sense for everyone because you put in all the kind of like the characters are still introduced and backstories given from what happened in previous yeah. books. So Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So you can just jump in at any time. I know it's meant to be for young adults, but as a 43-year-old, I still enjoyed it. I I think it's still because still it's, it. yeah, it's still the, it's the suspense, right? It's the suspense and the ghostly stuff and everyone likes to be scared oh. from, you know, every now and again. So yes, everyone go out and buy it. Go and read it. It's brilliant. Oh, that's so lovely of you. And then read the first two as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Honestly, because you panic, you think, oh gosh, you know, no one's reviewed it yet. Oh God, are people going to like it? Are they going to find, because I was worried thinking, oh my gosh, I'm, it's getting a bit complicated. But my husband and Mary went, no mum, it's the scariest one yet because of course it's about position possession and weird stuff and mm. frightening things you know so oh thank you oh sadly time is running away from us and there's so much more i wanted to talk to you about about like um your love of cars and crushing your mercedes on the first day you got it how you don't have a credit card not to mention the mummified cat you keep under the bath i mean <laughs> wow uh, but before we finish could you please just tell me more about the priest hole in your house and what you used to do at halloween with it uh, yes, we do have a, a, a priest hole in our house. Uh, the house dates back to, well, the original dates back to the 14th century. It is very, I call it a Harry Potter house, actually. It's all very crooked and old beams and you smash your head on the beams when you walk from one room to the other. And we do have a priest hole and it's actually outside Mary's room, God love her. And um, there's a thing that you pull, like, so it looks like floorboards, but you pull it back. It has a ring on the top of it. You pull it back. And it just is this chasm that drops down with an old, they've got old iron 
nails, but they're not, they're massive. So they would have used those to have gone up and down them, I presume, but we there's a ladder in there now and some lights and it's just a huge, it's just a huge drop. And, uh, and we had it checked out by a historian and they said, no, no, it is a proper priest hole. They, this would have been used. There was many, allegedly, quite a few little priests that would uh, be dropped down into the hole and wait for the round heads to go away and then pop back up again. But at Halloween, didn't you used to have like Halloween parties with your son? And you'd stick him down in the hole. Oh, there was one, there was, <laughs> there was one, <laughs> it sounds terrible, doesn't it? There was one little Halloween party and Will had some friends over. It makes it sound like I said, right, I'm going to drop you down in this hole. But no, uh, we showed them the priest hole and I said, ooh, I said, who's brave enough to go down there on their own on Halloween? And, uh, and they were me, 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 me. So one after the other, they went down there. And, and I sat there and I put the top on. I went, you all right? Yes. <laughs> and I think they must have gone home to their parents and said, that fielding has just abused my child by putting them down a hole. No, no, no. They wanted to. So, yeah. Put it this way. If, if, if anybody said, oh, can I go down your priest? I always said, no, it's okay. Let, let's just look at it. But let's not go down the hole. <laughs> You didn't make Harry Styles cry down a priest hole, did you? <laughs> I'm sure Harry did go down the priest hole. I'm sure he did. He was one of them, I'm sure. Yeah. That could be your claim to fame. I made Harry Styles cry in my priest hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, in fact, it's been so lovely talking with you today. And you too. Best of luck with the latest book, which is a pendle, and happy Halloween for the end of the month. Oh, happy Halloween to you, sweetheart. It's lovely talking to you. And thank you. Thank you for reading my book. thanks again to Yvette for joining me and having such a great chat. The Witches of Pendle is out now and if you've got kids that love a good ghostly read this will be right up their street. But as I mentioned grown-ups can still enjoy it too. Yvette has very generously given me two signed copies of the book to give away to lucky listeners so for a chance of winning one just head over to celebritycatchup.com win. Sorry to international listeners but this is only open to UK residents and if you're listening to this in 2024 or beyond I'm afraid you've missed the boat. But if you fancy more spooky goings-on do check out the Most Haunted Stage Show and Most Haunted Experience. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. It's always nice to get a five-star rating or review, and also people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. So please do that on your podcast platform of choice. It would totally make my day. And please follow on social media and share the pod so others can discover and listen to. Just search for Celebrity Catch Up and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening.